0: Please take your Bibles with me now, and let's turn together uh, to Luke's Gospel once again. And We're coming this morning uh, to Luke chapter 1, and we'll read verses 18 through 25. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And so you would, if you would stand with me now uh, for the reading of, of God's holy, uh, inerrant, and inspired word. Here now God's word from Luke 1, 18 and following. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people uh, waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple But when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me. In the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he bless it to our hearts. You may be seated. Well, at this time, little ones are dismissed to the nursery, and I ask you now to join me once again and pray. For the Lord's blessing now in his word, shall we pray. Again, our Father, we ask with all of our hearts that you would give your Holy Spirit in fullest measure, even as our Lord Jesus promised to give him to all who asked in faith. That you would lead us into the truth, that you would work in our hearts now by your grace and that you would open up to us now the very bread of life, Jesus himself, manna from heaven, given for our salvation, for we ask it in his name, amen. Uh, The last time we were together... uh, when we look together at verses 1 through 17 of chapter 1 of Luke's gospel, we saw how in the days of King Herod of Judea, the aged priest, Zechariah was ministering in the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and was burning incense on that occasion, uh, incense, that beautiful and moving symbol of the prayers of the church Uh, Rising to meet God in heaven, when an angel of the Lord appeared to him and announced that his aged and barren wife, Elizabeth, would bear him a son, and that he was to give that child the name John. Uh, The angel then goes on, you will remember, to say a number of remarkable things about this son. Number one, uh, he will bring Zacharias and Elizabeth, but not them only, many others, great joy. Number two, God will see this boy, this man as great. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. Three, from the very youngest, from his mother's womb even, He is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Number four, he is to have a great and profound spiritual ministry. He'll be a prophet like Elijah. He will go forth in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Number five, his ministry will repair disunity and dysfunction in families as he will turn the hearts of fathers back to their children. Six, and those who are disobedient, he will turn to the wisdom of the just and of the righteous. And finally, he is not the Lord, but he will go before the Lord as a forerunner with the great task of making a people ready and prepared for the Lord's own coming. Zacharias had been given a once in a lifetime opportunity to serve in the temple. And on that occasion, he encounters an angel sent to him by God to bring him good news. What a message! What a promise! The messianic age is dawning. And he and his wife, through their son, will be blessed to be a part of this great work of God. And yet, when given the news that he will have a child named John, he does not believe the angel's words and asks him, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife. She is well advanced in years, and everyone knows, Mr. Angel, that old men and women, especially old barren women, don't have babies, right? Doesn't everybody know that? Don't you know that? That old men, married to old barren women, don't have children. Zechariah refused, point blank, to believe the angel. His question is identical with that question asked by Abraham centuries before in Genesis 15.8 and yet it is asked in a different spirit it amounts to a demand for a sign now gideon and hezekiah you will remember it is true asked for signs but again in a very different spirit zecharias speaks from his unbelief as he provides the angel a brief lesson in the way things work here on earth. Reminding the angel that both he and his wife are old and that babies are not born to people like them. But his doubts are not justified. Had he not himself often read in the Old Testament how God had given Isaac as a son to the barren wife, of the aged Abraham and how Samuel was given as a son to Hannah, a formerly barren woman. See, beloved, this was no secular humanist, Zacharias. He was no atheist, he was no philosophical materialist who denied the possibility of the supernatural. Surely he believed God could do a miracle. But years of waiting had made their impact. He simply refused to believe that God would do a miracle in his and his wife's life. And dear friends, much as we may not like to admit it, Doubt and disbelief in the word of God are regular responses in our lives, even for one described as righteous. His I, grammatically, is emphatic. I am an old man. Well, in contrast with his emphatic I am an old man, The angel declares emphatically, well, I am Gabriel. And I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to you to speak to you and to bring you glad tidings. The angel points out to him the foolishness of his doubts by drawing attention to the dignity of this divine messenger. For he is not merely one amongst a number of angels, but Gabriel. It means, incidentally, man of God who stands in the immediate presence of God. Now, there are only two angels ever mentioned by name in the Bible. Gabriel and Michael. Gabriel, according to the name he bears, and his description as one who stands in the very presence of God, is the mighty messenger of God. Throughout the Holy Scriptures, therefore, he appears as the one who brings good tidings from God to man. By way of contrast, Michael is a destroyer. A destroyer of everyone who dares to aspire to equality with God or to resist Him. Gabriel is the one who builds up, Michael is the one who overthrows. With Gabriel, the grace and redeeming activity of God is in the foreground. It is a very special and unique favor that God would send such a special messenger. And how can he then still doubt the truth of his words? For by this attitude, he demonstrates that he distrusts not only him, but the Almighty who sent him. And therefore, because he did not believe A sign will indeed be given to him. But a sign that will serve as a chastisement for his unbelief. He will be rendered mute and not able to speak. A sign of displeasure for his lack of faith. And we find there is something here of immense importance. It is something that you find to be sure on every page of Holy Scripture But the fact that you find it here, in the account of the appearance of the Redeemer of the world, is revealing and immensely important. And I'm speaking now of the place and role of man's faith in God's plan of salvation. Here we learn of Zechariah's doubt and unbelief and the angel's stern response to it. We may wonder, uh, at the punishment of Zechariah, was it really necessary to punish this good and righteous man simply for asking for a sign, for asking to be assured that something so extraordinary was actually going to happen to him and to his wife, Did he really disbelieve or was he merely asking for further condemnation? But there it is in verse 20. Because you did not believe my words, says the angel. Dear friends, there is an obvious lesson in this text. The very lesson that Zechariah was first taught, a lesson about trusting the word of God, believing it to be true, believing it with absolute confidence, and then behaving accordingly. In other words, we have here a study in faith, believing God, taking him at his word, to which these dramatic events draw our attention in very unmistakable ways. The account is obviously written with the intention of drawing your attention to Zechariah's lack of faith, to the angel's rebuke, and to the subsequent punishment of Zechariah, which punishment itself in its very nature accented the failure of Zechariah's faith. And this is all the more astounding because we have just been told in verse 6 that this was a righteous man in the sight of God and that he was blameless. And yet here he wavers in faith, passes through doubt, and comes even to disbelief. And then by way of contrast to Zechariah's doubt, we have Elizabeth's expression of a sturdy faith. She knows very well, no doubt, from her husband what the Lord told Zechariah. She has no doubt that what has happened to her and what is happening to her is the fulfillment of the Lord's promise. And she acts accordingly, even if we are not told precisely why she acts in the ways that she does. And so in the same paragraph, And emphatically at that, we have a study in faith, weak faith and strong faith. And profound contrasts between Zechariah's response and that of his wife, between Zechariah's words and that of the angel. Glad tidings, good news announced from heaven by one dwelling in the immediate presence of God. Delivered to a godly, devout Jewish priest. And what happens? He doesn't believe it. And of course, these glad tidings, this good news, is nothing less than the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the inauguration of the messianic age and the coming of the Redeemer, the coming to pass of God's ancient plan of salvation for the world. Glad Tidings refers to the long promised fulfillment of a triumphant kingdom of God being revealed to the people of God and to the world, the coming of the great servant of the Lord, the Messiah, the beginning of his reign of righteousness and peace throughout the world. The angel has brought this good news, this gospel, as we shall soon hear, a savior to save his people from their sins. A king to reign and cover the earth in righteousness. One to fulfill the promises made long ago to Abraham. A ruler to sit on the throne of his father David. Of whose kingdom there shall be no end. And what do you think, beloved, is the desired response to this announcement, to this declaration, to this message of glad tidings from heaven. Faith. Faith in the message. Faith in the meaning of the events. This is a key theme in the opening narrative of the Gospel of Luke. There is Elizabeth's faith, Mary's faith, Joseph's faith, the shepherd's faith, Anna's faith, Simeon's faith, and Matthew, the faith of the Magi. It's everywhere. And you know that history well enough that I simply remind you that in case after case, It is not only that God appears to men and women in the Bible and reveals his plans and purposes for his kingdom and for salvation. He does that. But here is the key point. The people themselves believe what they are told. They trust the word of God. And they act and behave accordingly. They take God at his word. They trust his promises. They take his messengers at their word. And they entrust themselves to the promises they receive. That is faith. And what is perhaps most astounding about these narratives is that here is the dawning of the day of redemption. Is it accompanied by God's own saving power and the revelation of his word And even that did not occur and did not appear apart from faith, the faith of men and women. It's a story of how they responded to this good news, at least one of whom responded initially rather poorly and without faith altogether, but others who responded wonderfully well. We see the same thing all throughout the Bible. God does not work among men apart from faith. True enough, faith is itself a gift, but it is essential to God's plan. He, his word, his work is to be received by men and believed among men, that they be confident that what God has promised will come to pass and that they then live accordingly. It's what's found all throughout the Bible, and it's what's found here in the opening narratives of Luke. Faith is resting the heart in the promise of God. Faith is taking God at his word. Faith is believing that God can and will do what he says he will do. Faith is knowing that God is faithful, that He is able. Faith is trusting one's entire being to God. God acts, that much is true. God saves. Everywhere God takes the initiative, God intervenes. God's is the power and the glory and the grace. But everywhere we find God's people trusting the divine word and giving themselves over to the divine action. We also see people refusing to do so, failing to believe, and therefore not experiencing or recognizing the salvation that has come into the world. But our faith has always been essential God's plan. We can't even read the account of the greatest divine act ever performed, the incarnation of the Son of God, without it at the same time becoming an account of the nature of human faith, the challenge of faith, and the power of faith. God's will is to work through faith. God acts Men believe. This is how it has been from the very beginning. This is how it was in the time of Zechariah. This is how it is for us. And this is how it always shall be. We read in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. Righteousness. Habakkuk tells us, and Paul repeats it, the just shall live by faith. In Hebrews 11, we read that it is impossible without faith to please God. It has always been by faith. There was no one who was ever saved, no one who was ever justified, no one who was ever made right with God in any way other than by faith. There has ever only been one way, and it is by faith from beginning to end. But faith is one of our most misunderstood Bible words. The command to believe in God or to have faith in God means to reckon or to consider on the faithfulness of God. It is to believe in one's heart that God is faithful and true and to act accordingly. It is not, contrary to so many, to abandon all reason, to make a blind leap, or to project your wishes to be true. It is to believe God we often say and we often think and we often hear that we must believe in God. But to believe God is to strike nearer to the heart of the matter. Many believe in the existence of God who do not really believe God. That is to say, to know His word To believe his word, to trust his word, and to live according to his word. That is what it is to believe God. John Calvin was fond of saying that faith is, quote, to presume on the veracity of God. It is to presume that God is true, that he tells the truth. That he is faithful. Faith is the confidence that what God has said is true. And it is a confidence that demands action. We have it in the negative, in Zechariah's doubting. And in the positive, in Elizabeth's confidence. And later in the same chapter, in Elizabeth's remark to Mary, we have that same definition of faith in a very pure form. And it goes like this. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. That is believing God. That is biblical faith. The Bible, as always, is realistic. It is honest. The first faith we encounter in Luke's gospel is, is weak faith. And we tend to be somewhat sympathetic with the old priest. It's not an easy thing to believe that you and your aged barren wife would, after all these years of disappointment, conceive a child. And no matter that the angel was standing in front of him, the news was so remarkable and incredible that it took the poor man some time to get around it, however wonderful the news was, perhaps especially because it was so wonderful. He was a man of faith and a man of prayer who took the duties of his priestly office very seriously. And yet he found it hard to believe that he and his aged and barren wife could possibly have a child at this state. I wonder, would you and I have acted any differently? There is much about God's plan that is either too wonderful or too difficult to believe easily. And so like Zechariah, we stumble and we doubt. We struggle to accept the truth as the truth. Some have found it too hard to believe that Jesus Christ is really the only savior of sinners. Some have found it too hard to believe that God really means what he says when it comes to human sexuality. It is hard for many of us to believe that the kingdom is coming. That a day of triumph will soon be here when we see the power of unbelief and prevailing sin in the world today. But how little do we really see or understand the Lord's promises? And it's not unique to our age. Remember, dear friends, no one, no one expected to see the Messiah arrested, to see him suffer To see him abused by wicked men and then put to death in a cruel and humiliating way. But there it is in the scriptures. It was always there and yet no one saw it and therefore no one expected it. If there was much faithlessness regarding his first coming, should it really come as any surprise that we should struggle so hard to understand his second coming. But it was in that death of Christ that the world was redeemed. And you are tempted, and I am tempted, we are continually tempted to believe that we have to do something, to perform something, to accomplish something in order to be saved. Mm -hmm. In fact, it has all already been done for you. God has acted finally and sufficiently in Christ on your behalf. All you must do is to believe Him, to trust Him, to take Him at His word that His cross and His resurrection are precisely what you needed. You may object. I am a poor, wretched, miserable sinner. No one could love me, least of all God. But Jesus would say to you, I am the Son of God, and I am the Savior of the world. I've done everything necessary for you. Only trust me. Only believe. You know, when we walk by sight, we see what our eyes see and nothing more. We see an old man, an old woman, barrenness and hopelessness. And when we walk by sight, we don't believe God for the impossible. But when we walk by faith, and we believe God for the impossible. And we see what the eye cannot see. We see the power of God, and the glory of God, and the grace of God, and the faithfulness of God. Everything about Zacharias' situation made him think that what the angel said was not going to happen. The situation was hopeless, too far gone impossible and you may be in such a situation today perhaps in your marriage and perhaps with your children or in another relationship or a certain problem or struggle in your life it's overwhelming to you you see no way out you can't imagine that it could ever change God is great. He's a God of the supernatural. He can do by his grace and power what you could never do and what you thought impossible. And we look out into this world, don't we, dear friends, and we see the increase of evil and we see the progress of sin and of unbelief we see the persecution of the church in some parts of the world. And some wonder, is God really in control? Is Christ still on his throne? Is he really going to come again and right every wrong and vindicate his church and make all things new? He is. And you and I can believe it with the eye of faith. Some of you need to believe it and to believe this again today. That God is alive. That God is real. That God is at work. That God is very near to us and not distant. That he is ready to help us in our time of trouble to come to us in our deepest distress. I say, I'm an old man. It can't happen. He says, I am God. Let's pray. Again, we thank you, our Father, for your wonderful word for its truth and power. Speak now to every heart that we might look to Jesus and be saved. We ask it in his name. Amen.